Hello, everybody. I'm very excited. My very first documentary, Psychonautics, a comics exploration of psychedelics. It's coming out March 5th. It's available for pre-order now on iTunes and Amazon. You can go to psychonauticsfilm.com. You can also go to shanemoss.com. The feedback from this film has been absolutely fantastic. Even if you don't think that you're into psychedelics, I think you'll still enjoy this film. Plus, you'll be supporting me. It's a great mix of insights from all the top researchers in the field of psychedelics, mixed with some of my stand-up, mixed with following me on a journey through many experiences and I'm just thrilled about how it all came out. So once again, it's available on Amazon and iTunes now for pre-order. And guys, it really helps me out if you get the pre-orders because the more pre-orders there is, the more it's bumped up on Amazon and iTunes when it's released and it gets, you know, it gets recommended for people more because there's more pre-orders. So you'll be helping me out. You'll be helping spread the word about what I think is a worthy cause. And also, you'll be entertained. So please check out psychonauticsfilm.com. I'm really hoping, if we do well with this documentary, to make more science-based documentaries in the future that mix a bunch of research with stand-up and other fun stuff following me going through studies and that sort of thing is the plan. If we do well enough with this documentary, we'll be able to fund more documentaries and there will be more to enjoy. So please help me out. Psychonauticsfilm.com Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Welcome to the Here We Are podcast, everybody. Today I am talking with an anthropologist at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. John Hawks is joining me today. John, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for doing my new show, Stand Up Science, as well. We're going to have to scoot over there right after this. So there's going to be a whole lot of Shane in your life uh, today. <laughs> so um, so I just finished on, on the drive-in last night. I just finished your book, Almost Human. Uh-huh. Can you tell people a little bit about what uh, Almost Human was about? Sure. You know, my grid friend, Lee Berger, and I wrote the book to give an account of the discoveries that we've been involved with over the past several years and the the ways that the science has changed in the light of some of these discoveries by our team in South Africa. Uh, the discovery first of a fossil species called Australopithecus sediba, uh, which Lee's son actually uh, discovered in 2008, uh, led to tremendous amounts of science. We just, in the last month, have had new articles come out about Sediba. Um, it's just an amazing series of scientific sort of discoveries and analyses. And then in 2013, the discovery of Homo naledi. Uh, this discovery, the largest fossil assemblage ever found in Africa of any fossil human relative, um, 
our team working deep underground in this incredibly difficult to reach chamber and and just this serendipitous discovery of there's this thing here that nobody ever appreciated before um, has really called into question some of the really basic things about our evolutionary history. So it's been an enormous, you know, series of events. It's been an incredible ride. And the book gives that story, you know, mainly from Lee's point of view as being involved in every discovery from the beginning, but also where these discoveries fit into the broader picture of science. First off, because I, what I love about this book is that it's one of the few science books that I've read that really walks through what it's like to be a scientist yeah and uh, and it really uh, you get to really follow the journey mm-hmm. and it's you get the science as well but you really uh, got a sense of even in terms of going through uh you talk about the selection process for postdocs to do yeah. to work with and, mm-hmm. and what mm-hmm. building a team is like mm-hmm. and it gave this incredible insight because I've I've now interviewed uh, over 200 academics uh-huh. for uh, for this podcast, and that I I was like, oh man, I, I guess I didn't even realize how, how putting together a a team of people uh, work and all that all that background stuff yeah. that you never never hear about. It's fascinating because you know I think all of us in our careers go through this stage where we're nobody you know and and you're working really hard at something but it's a struggle and when you get lucky and make a discovery to have to go from being a single investigator to putting together a team because you've got now data for lots of people to work on and you can't do it all yourself and on the side you've got to raise money to make all this happen you know it's this journey that i think all of us in science go through but everybody treats it as if it's this independent thing you know like nobody else ever had to do this before (laughs) but but actually when you read how how we did it and you see wow you know there are these decisions that you made along the way of who's going to be involved and we're going to get all these young people involved but that has its own consequences and and you know how do we make sure that everybody's getting the career payoffs from being involved in this and and how do we make sure that we're not leaving things on the table that are really great science that we should be doing? You know, those are all, you know, really fascinating aspects of how science works. Hmm. So why don't you tell people a little bit about your background, your, your journey from, from a, a young buck uh, trying to, <laughs> trying to catch a break mining for gold yeah. out there and, and to making, uh, being a part of these groundbreaking discoveries. You know, I grew up in Kansas, a small town and, I didn't have, you know, there weren't scientists in my town. <laughs> this wasn't a career choice that that you made. But I was interested in this area. I loved National Geographic. I loved, you know, learning about fossils. And uh, and in college, I got a chance to do some teaching in this, and that was really transformative because that took me to where oh, I've developed an expertise. Um, I went to work on Neanderthals. And these ancient people, they lived more than 50,000 years ago. They're gone today. When I started, we didn't appreciate, you know, today we've got all this genetic information. And we know that you and I and most people have a little bit of Neanderthal in us. But in those days, we didn't know that for sure. You know, some of us thought this is likely, but there was no genetics. So you couldn't really tell. Mm. 
And you just have to size up people. Yeah. Once in a while, you look at someone and be like, ah, I think you, you know. know. It's funny because when you work in this area, you get emails from people, and and for me, it's always emails from women, and they all read the same, right? I think that you would be interested in my husband. <laughs> I'm like, really? You know, as a scientific subject, you know? <laughs> he's got hair on his back. He's got. I'm like, whoa, lady. <laughs> sure. Um, yeah, but but when I was working on that, you know, fossils are rare, and finding fossils is something that you know is usually once in a lifetime, and it's once in a lifetime because most people, when they find one, they stop. It turns out. Um, and so I then turned to genetics because genetics was growing and I was doing genetic work. I uh, did some really cool stuff on how our species has been changing recently in the last few thousand years and, uh, and began to work on this Neanderthal genetics as it started coming out. And it was, it was that process and the process of, of doing some of the public science that I've done, you know, the big courses that we were in. Yeah, I took an online course years ago that you taught. That's a, a, yeah. I've, I've had your name in, on a list of people to reach out to ever since. Yeah, it was that scaling up what we were able to do with, with public outreach, with courses, with blogging, with, that hooked me up with Lee. And then our work in South Africa just grew, you know, as, as these discoveries were made, it was like, wow, you know, we've suddenly entered this new age where we're finding fossils and we're not stopping. We're continuing to find new stuff. And, and that's, that was something that was kind of controversial with the, uh, kind of opening things up to, uh, to the public and letting more, it's, I guess it was my impression from the book is that you would you would make a new fossil discovery and you'd kind of keep it a secret for a while and keep it under wraps until you were ready to publish everything. And you know they were really trade secrets. You know it was like I found something, ooh, I found something, and then you would, you know, you would work on it in secret. And and people really varied in in their approach. I think some people. It was the tradition of secrecy, and that tradition wasn't always there. You know, this this really emerged in the 70s and 80s. You know, the discovery of Lucy was happened during a time when people would make copies of their fossils available to everybody, you know? So it's sort of recent that people have become really secretive about what they've found. But but a lot of that came from insecurity. You know, people said, I'm never gonna find something else again. This is my chance to make my name. And I'm going to study whatever there is to study about this, and nobody's going to take it from me. And that often meant that somebody who was really great at working in the field and finding fossils, the essential problem that their fossil posed was some detail of the anatomy of the jaw. And they had to go and study lots and lots and lots of jaws to, to compare it. And so they stopped doing what they were great at and started doing something that they were bad at. And that led to huge insecurity because they felt like, well, if I don't do all the work on this, it's not really mine, you know? And, and our team, we approached this from the beginning with the idea that, you know, I don't want to learn to do something I'm not good at. <laughs> I, I can bring in somebody who can do that. You know, I want, I want everyone to work on what they're best at. So it, can we talk a little bit about the these two massive discoveries that sure. that were made uh -huh. and what they what they do mean in the broader picture of things? Because uh, 
it, it seems like that, uh, that, let's see, so one of them was Homo Natelli, and then what was the first one again? So Homo Naledi was, N- was the one that we did, yes, yes. Yeah. Naledi is no, great, No right? offense to the, all the Homo Nalettis out there. Did well, you know, there's more of them than most other things <laughs> at the moment. It's really great. Um, yeah, Naledi means star in the language where uh, that's spoken around where we found it. Mm-hmm. So it's star people. And Sediba, Australopithecus Sediba, um, which which means spring actually, because it was found in a in a little valley with a spring. Hmm. And so, so the first one, mm-hmm. uh, Sediba, mm-hmm. uh, they were it, usually when you find these fossils, uh, you're picking through tons of other fossils. There's yeah. a bunch of yeah. uh, other wildlife and whatnot, and you're sorting through. What What is that process like? Do you just have an eye for it after a while when you're just sifting through? You know, it's it, a, it, it sounded, what's, what is the number? It's not, in the book, if I'm remembering right, it he made it sound like there was like a hundred thousand other fossils. There are hundreds of thousands, hundreds of thousands some of these sites. Yeah, and and each of these. So so to describe what the scenario is, right? These are caves where we work, and the caves have current areas which are underground, but they also have areas that are not underground anymore, but were underground in the past, and the roof of the cave has gone away. Deposits in caves. Whether it's you know gravel or, or dirt that comes in, bones that come in, the parts of animals that are dragged in, um, owls fly into the caves and drop owl pellets with little you know pieces of, of rodents in them. You know all that stuff gets into caves, and some of it is preserved by water dripping in and cementing it all together with calcite that forms, right? The stalagmites, stalactites, et cetera, that stuff forms, you know, solid deposits with bones and stuff in it. Mm. Those are the fossils. And those fossils represent animals that, like I said, were brought into the cave by predators, animals that went into the cave and were using the cave maybe because it was cool or because they were they smelled water inside, animals that fall into the cave. Uh, all that stuff is in a giant mass in some of these cave sites. And the, what you see is rock that has bones sticking out of it. And... In these caves where we work, most of them have been altered to some degree by mining. So miners have come in, they've blasted, and the miners in these caves are there because they're stripping out stalactites and stuff because they can take that calcite and burn it to make a quicklime product, which is useful for them. And in, in, you know, it's what cement's made out of. Um, and it, during the early 20th century, this was a cheap way to get cement. Um, so they went into caves and destroyed them. Hmm. And as a consequence, you got a lot of blasted stuff around. So you've got these rocks that have been blasted apart and they've got bones sticking out of them. And it's your job to find, you know, to find out what these are, you know, in some cave sites, uh, our book describes Gladys Vale, which is a really cool cave site. I was there a couple weeks ago and it's, it's cool because, Today, we appreciate that it's got really neat evidence of past environments. Like there's this hyena midden in it where hyenas in the past came and shat. And so there's copper lights that are full of stuff that they ate. Um, But also in the cave are hundreds and hundreds of thousands of antelope bones. And it's just antelope after antelope. 
and and hardly any there were two teeth of a human-like relative right from this cave so that's that's the worst example right because you don't want to be working on something with hundreds of thousands of bones and only two that are connected to you know to us right because that's what gets all the news that's what people are interested in right how do you even spot two teeth out of all of this that 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 seems like (laughs) well incredibly tedious it's it's incredibly tedious work right i mean this is teams of of, at that time, undergraduate students and honor students who were picking through these piles of rock and looking at the outsides of these rocks, and it's like, oh, there's a tooth, you know. Mm-hmm. Oh, wait a minute, that's that's a that's a human-like tooth, you know. It's it, teeth are very distinctive, you know. We can tell the teeth of different animals apart pretty well, mm-hmm. much more so than fragments of of parts of a bone, you know. We do pretty well with bone, but teeth are teeth are pretty good. Hey guys, Randy and Jason here, and whether you're working from home or working on your fitness, you want what you're listening to to be what you're listening to. Yeah, you don't want to catch like glimpses and little snippets of like what snippets, you know, tidbits of what your kids are listening to or anyone else. Everyone needs a great pair of wireless earbuds, but before you go dropping hundreds of bucks on a pair, you need to check out the wireless earbuds from Raycon. They are amazing. I've got my Raycon earbuds. They cancel out everything. Raycon earbuds start for about a half price of the other ones. Premium wireless earbuds on the market. And they sound just as amazing as the top uh, audio brands you know. The newest model, the Everyday E25 earbuds, are their best ones yet. Jay, I love these uh, so much. I'm using it nonstop, Brent. Six hours of playtime, seamless Bluetooth playing, more bass, more compact design. Gives you a nice noise-isolating fit. I like that if you have one of them in, you can just hear use one of them. For They're stylish and discreet. I love these so much. Now's the time to get a pair of the latest and the greatest from Raycon. Get 15% off your order by Raycon.com. Uh, slash Starburns. That's by B-U-I, Raycon.com, R-A-Y-C-O-N.com, slash Starburns for 15% off Raycon wireless earbuds. I love these earbuds so much. I know you do too. I'm all about them, man. They're they're my reach. You know what you feel when you reach for them and that's and you the thing love you reach them. for and that's my hike. Those are my hike earbuds. Those are hike. my walking earbuds. Buy B-U-I, R-A-Y-C-O-N.com, slash Starburns for 15% off. Hey, I'm Andy. If you don't know me, it's probably because I'm not famous. But I did start a men's grooming company called Harry's. The idea for Harry's came out of a frustrating experience I had buying razor blades. Most brands were overpriced, overdesigned, and out of touch. At Harry's, our approach is simple. Here's our secret. We make sharp, durable blades and sell them at honest prices for as low as $2 each. We care about quality so much that we do some crazy things, like buy a world-class German blade factory. Obsessing over every detail means we're confident in offering a 100% quality guarantee. Millions of guys have already made the switch to Harry's, so thank you if you're one of them. And if you're not, we hope you give us a try with this special offer. Get a Harry starter set with a five-blade razor, weighted handle, shave gel, and a travel cover. All for just three bucks, plus free shipping. Just go to harrys.com and enter 8989 at checkout. That's harrys.com, code 8989. Enjoy. There must be teams of people just going through antelope bones and never, ever finding a thing. That was Lee's life at Gladysville for 17 years. You know, he found two hominid teeth and then when the rest of it was antelopes, it was, it's terrible. You know, it's, it's like, it's like when you win a little bit at the casino, the first time you go and, it then, is, and then you it get is. hooked. And, and the challenge of what we do is that a lot of sites are like that, right? A lot of sites 
are like, okay, we're going to dig an archaeological site and it's got these stone tools and it's got lots of fragmented animal bones because that's what the people ate. And there's hundreds of thousands of tiny flakes and little pieces of animal bone. And it's like, okay, well, that's what we study. That's what we do, you know, and quantifying that and understanding, does this represent some parts of the animals more than others? Are there species of animals that they relied on more than others? You know, those are big questions that we can address and it takes lots of people going through lots and lots of tiny bone fragments so how was sediba found because so, it was it was Sadiba found by a child totally out of the ordinary right it, it, lee was doing a a survey of the the area right this area outside of johannesburg mm. it's called the cradle of humankind because it's got these famous sites that have these fossils and and so he was doing a satellite image survey he went on the ground to one of these sites that he saw from satellite imagery that was like, oh, there's probably a cave here, went there, and his son went with him, and his son Matthew was, you know, going off the site with the dog, you know, it's like chasing the dog over, and, and he calls, his, calls over to his dad, dad, I found a fossil, and Lee walked over, and there it was, you know, there's this piece of a collarbone of, <laughs> of a hominid, right, and it's like, oh, Wow, you know, that's that's a significant thing. But what then transpired was that this site actually had at least now six individuals in it of this previously unknown species. And the first two individuals that are two relatively, you know, complete skeletons, they're still, you know, parts of them are still being extracted from rock. You know, the that, that was how many years ago that that happened? Like that 15? was 2008 that the first discovery okay. was made. In 2010, they published the the these two skeletons, and bits of them are still coming out. What's that process? You, so you find a couple teeth, you mm -hmm. find the you see the first bone, mm -hmm. you get real excited. Yeah, but then uh, what what is the process? So, then, so now ten years later, you're still. I mean, that's how long it takes some of these things, right? I, so, how, how much longer do you have to go? Depends, actually. It's every excavation, and this this process is some is called preparation, mm -hmm. right? These bones are in rock, and in order to sort of get them out of the rock, someone has got to sit with a microscope and a tiny device called an air scribe and use pressurized air to remove the rock very slowly. And if you've been to a museum where they have that room with people working on fossils, that's what they're doing. They're ah. using these sorts of equipment to clean the surface of the fossils. Um, in, in the case of Sediba, the fossils were embedded in rock, parts of them were blasted out of the site. And so that first fossil that, that Matthew found was blasted clear of the site and was over to the side. But they were able to trace those to a deposit in what is now just a pit, but once upon a time was a big cave, um, where parts of the skeletons were. They took blocks from the site into a museum context, and today, preparators are still working on one of those blocks in a museum. Um, so, so that's a long, long process because we want to make sure that we get every piece of information out of it that we can. Um, the first pieces of it came out, were published in 2010, and, and now we're filling in gaps. And parts of this will probably stay in the rock forever. We'll say, okay, we know where this is. We have CT scans of the rock, so we know what bones are inside, and those can stay there 
because in the future we may develop technologies that get more information out of them than we can today. Um, even CT scans, that's something that's pretty oh, absolutely. brand new, right? Absolutely. You know, one of the things that's really cool about Sediba is um, on the teeth, right? Your teeth and my teeth, they get this stuff, this plaque, right? Gunk on them. And when that plaque gets calcified, it turns into what dentists call tartar or calculus. And calculus is actually a fossil. It is a calcified deposit of plaque that includes all the stuff that was on your teeth at the time that it formed. And that includes, of course, microbes, but it also includes little bits of starch from the potatoes and the bread and the plants that you eat. It includes tiny bits of plant hmm. that plants have little, um, little solid things inside them called opal phytoliths. And they're very distinctive to plant species. So it includes those. It includes sometimes chemical traces. And so you can actually get a lot of information from your diet if you were to look with a microscope and to do chemical tests on that stuff at the dentist. Hmm. We do this now with fossils. And we can discover a lot about the diet of ancient fossils from this process. With Sediba, one of the cool things is that there are little bits of the inner bark of, of tree there, cambium, right? That, that inner bark layer that some animals eat. And it means that Sediba, probably during the dry season, was relying on this inner bark. You know, it's like, whoa, you know, the, here's a human relative and it's eating this stuff that deer eat in the wintertime here, you know, but it's a very different kind of diet process than we probably would have imagined for this species. And that kind of analysis didn't exist 20 years ago. Hmm. And we don't know what's going to exist 20 years from now. Hmm. So how old is Sediba? So Sediba is just under 2 million years old. Um, and, and that puts it at a very interesting time in human origins because just over 2 million years ago is when our relatives start to really rely on stone tools. They start to eat a higher energy diet. They're hunting. They're getting more animal foods. And, and that seems to be really important to the, to the evolution of of us, you know, of of our species eventually, but our distant ancestors then. Sediba is right on the border of that. You know, it's a small-brained species, but it also has small teeth and looks like its diet quality must have been fairly high because it's not huge-toothed and and eating things that took a lot of chewing. Hmm. Hmm. So, uh, what does what does that tell us in terms of? Um, uh, where do they fit in? Because they weren't quite homo, right? Yeah, they aren't quite homo. They don't have bigger brains, right? We look at brain size as being real important to homo. And our other discovery, Naledi, is something that has challenged that picture. But nonetheless, when we look at our genus, genus homo, we look at certain traits of the skull that reflect a smaller face, smaller teeth. We look at larger brain size, and we look at bigger bodies. You know, humans today we're big compared to chimpanzees. Chimpanzees are not like early hominins, our relatives, because chimpanzees have longer arms than legs. They're really well built for climbing and, and hanging below branches. Our early hominin relatives, like Lucy, they had shorter arms than legs, and they walked upright like we do. So they were bad at climbing relative to chimps. 
but they were probably a lot better at climbing than we are because their arms were sort of strong and their bodies were much smaller than ours on average. So humans have evolved to be more reliant on getting around on the ground and getting around for long distances. How long have Homo erectus been around? Homo erectus began around 1.8 million years ago, so just after Sediba. Okay. Yeah. And so is Sediba potentially a, a common ancestor? Or, or It is a potential ancestor, and beyond that, we can't be sure. Hmm. Um, it is similar to some of the early species in our genus, something like Homo habilis. Sediba is like that in some ways. But, but it's not clear to us if this is an ancestor, if it's a close relative, it's got this mixture of traits that we're like, well, if, if that's our ancestor, then our ancestor had a different pattern than we might have imagined. Hmm. And it, how do you make these kinds of decisions about how to classify uh, a, new, <laughs> a new discovery? It's super hard. You know, I was directly involved with this decision for Naledi. And, and I'll tell you that what, what strikes me we look at the details, right? We look at every trait that we can that we can examine, and and as we do so, we compare those details to every other fossil that we found anywhere, and and we say, okay, how does this compare to that? How does this compare to that? You know, we go down the list, and it would be one thing if that led to an easy decision, like okay, this is like a human here, like a human there, like a human there. I guess it's a human, you know. It's, but it's another thing when it's a mix. You know, it's like, well, this part is like a human, but that part is like Erectus, and this part is like Habilis, and this part is like Lucy. You know, it's it's like, oh, we've got this mix of things. And that's what these species are showing us. They're showing us a mix. Um, that mix tells us that these different kinds of human relatives were responding to ancient environments in sometimes similar ways. So you might have two different original organisms, two different animals that start to adapt in common because they're living in a similar environment. And so they become similar in some ways, or you've got two descendants of the same ancestor that start living in different environments and they become different in some ways. And those two options are sometimes hard to tell with closely related animals. You know, you start asking, you know, if you look around here in Wisconsin and you got badgers and skunks and bears and, and so on, they're all related. But if you look at the details, you say, well, this is more similar to that in some ways and more similar to this other in some ways. And so working out the tree is not always very easy. Hmm. And how old was, uh, first off, how did, how was uh, the Homo Naledi, right? Naledi, how was mm -hmm. Homo Naledi discovered? So Naledi was discovered by our team working underground. Uh, two guys, uh, Steve Tucker and Rick Hunter, were underground in the Rising Star Cave system. They went into a crack that wasn't on their map. They're like, they're like, okay, well, wait a minute. This, this isn't just a dead end. This actually goes somewhere. And Steve was the first to go down. He, he slips down this crack. It's a 40 foot climb downwards. And the crack that he's going down is at its minimum point, about seven and a half inches wide. So, you know, it's, it's really to the extent that you have to turn your head to get through because your head doesn't go through one way. You know, it's, it's like very narrow. 
And I would love this, by the way. I know. I'm, it's I'm crazy. I'm very slender. I, uh-huh. I'm a rock climber. Uh-huh. I, I would absolutely love doing this. Yeah. that's Those are the people that, that really get into this, right? Is yeah. you're underground. You're going somewhere that nobody's been before. You don't know if it's going to open up to this giant, you know, chasm or if you're going to. So he dropped into this little chamber and he looked around. And there's bones. Mm-hmm. And he's like, whoa, bones. And, you know, the the sort of amazing thing about this is that both these guys get down into this place. It's not on their map. They didn't know it was there. There's bones on the floor of the cave and their camera doesn't work. <laughs> and so they climb back out. They wait a couple of weeks. They come back with the camera working. They take pictures. They bring the pictures out of the cave and they hook up with Lee and, and they're like, you got to see this. And the picture showed that, oh, my God, this is a hominin. We've got some sort of human relative here. And I got the pictures right then, you know, so so I was very excited about it. Um, and from that, we organized the expedition to to arrive there and to investigate what this was. And that's where the discovery happened. And this is, it turned out to be the largest find. And this is very unusual too, because there wasn't a bunch of antelope bones around. Yeah, it's crazy. You know, it's, it is, it is very unusual. And, and that posed for us a lot of challenges, right? I've described to you Sadiba, it's found in rock. You know, the Naledi bones are not at all. They are in just dirt inside the cave. Um, Our team was able to use paintbrushes to to clear the dirt away and to excavate them like you like you see archaeologists on television right that's what our team did um this sounds like a much easier job though it is it is easy in the sense of it's it takes less time to to excavate a bone Mm -hmm. it is hard in the sense that it is in this incredibly difficult to reach place and our team is still Everybody that uses that that works in this chamber has to be able to navigate the cave and to get into this incredibly narrow place. So it is really tough. Hmm. You got you ever get anybody breaking bones on the way back out? A couple, couple you know, we've been we've been really lucky. We have not. You know, obviously safety is a big consideration with what we do. I, I mean, not their physical bones. I mean, the bags <laughs> that they were pulling out from the cave. Our team would rather break their own bones <laughs> than to break a fossil. <laughs> yeah. And and I'll say that they, in order to come out, they all have to come out through this narrow thing, right? Yeah. They all come out. Um, every one of them is wrapped in bubble wrap, packaged in with its, with its catalog number and everything in Tupperware's and then put inside of caving bags that are padded, you know, so it's, it's pretty secure. You know, I, I wouldn't say it's perfect, but it is, it is every care is taken to make sure that nothing is broken. Cause that's the why. like, I, it sounds like a fun job, but that, that would be me. I'd be the class oh, yeah. that dropped it. And then <laughs> everyone's looking at it me. is, it is very, you know, we have these, protocols that you know make sure that everything is treated in exactly the same way and treated in ways that are going to preserve it and and so you know you go through all of this and you know it's a mission and and when you're following the steps in the mission things turn out how do you go about finding the right person for a job like that you know uh initially uh it was through facebook it was it was a Hmm. We're going to organize this thing. Lee put on his Facebook page, hey, we're looking for archaeologists who have the right skill set to do this. The catch is you have to be skinny. 
You know, <laughs> you have to have climbing skills, right? And found this incredible team of people who were all PhD students in archaeology, who all had caving underground climbing experience, and who were all capable of getting through the narrow passage. You know, it's, I admire every one of them because it's not it's not something that physically I can do. You know, I'm a big guy, and the places where we have bones in this cave are places that I can't go. Hmm. So. Let's talk a little more about this find because this is this is just the jackpot. Because normally you find, say, you find two teeth that yeah. that, that uh, look like they're homo. That's mm-hmm. a that's a pretty good day for you. Mm-hmm. But this find was something spectacular. This, this was this, amazing. You know, we're used to dealing with jaws and teeth, and and teeth are hard. You know, enamel is hard. Uh, the jawbone is the hardest bone in the body. Cranial bones are hard. You know, we. We have a fossil record, which is amazing for humans and our relatives. Right? We have fundamentally no fossil chimpanzees, right? So, so we do pretty well for humans. We have hundreds and hundreds of fossils, but it's biased in the sense that there are parts that we know a lot about and other parts that we really don't know as much about. This assemblage of fossils preserves the entire body of now at least 21 individuals, um, and, and we have multiple copies of every part of the body. We have grown ups and little children and babies, and it is a very unique picture of the biology of a species that is our relative, but is very different from us in many ways. And how old are they? They're, the bones are about 250,000 years old. Oh, so, so much more recent. Much more recent. And in fact, this time frame, right, where Sediba is 2 million years ago, um, it's just before Homo erectus first evolves. Naledi exists in Africa at the same time that our direct ancestors, early modern humans, are evolving. Mm. And so here it is. It's living if not alongside at the same time in the same continent as our direct ancestors. And there it is. And it has a brain a third, the size of ours and its bodies are human. Like in some ways it's feet and legs, very human, like, but it's small, right? It stands between four and a half and five feet tall. It's got shoulders and hands that look like they're really well made for climbing you know it's the shoulders are sort of hunched upwards like this the hands have curved fingers it looks like they were really gripping on things powerfully um but it's got teeth that are basically human-sized teeth which means that it was eating foods that are really good you know high energy foods um it is this weird combination and that tells us something really important it tells us a that our species wasn't alone that we evolved in a context with some other creature that was like us in some really important ways, but so different in other ways. Mm. And it tells us that somehow where we thought that our evolution was, was very linear and we were getting bigger brains all the time and we we're getting better and better at technology all the time. It tells us that at the same time, something that is not like us very much at all is there going toe to toe with our species and surviving. Hmm. And that's amazing. 
right? Because it tells us that, hey, we're not so great <laughs> because right. something else was there and it was as good as we were. Well, how, how long, uh, how old is Homo sapien? Homo sapiens first examples around 250, 300,000 years old. Okay. So we're literally talking about, look, these guys are here. Our species is first evolving. And wow, you know, that was a very different scenario than we imagined. Didn't it take us a while before we started like really taking over though? We were Homo sapiens were in pretty small numbers for quite a while, right? Yeah. So our species. Our closest relatives are the Neanderthals and a group that we've only recently learned about from genetics, a group called the Denisovans. And they diverged from our ancestors, Homo sapiens, around 600, 700,000 years ago. Um, both of those, all three of those lines evolved at that point. After about 100,000 years ago, so the, the African version of humans, which became modern humans, Homo sapiens, the African version then emerged from Africa and spread and began to displace Neanderthals and Denisovans and potentially other populations. Um, Wait, when was that again? That was after 100,000 okay. years ago. So really the last 100,000 years of our history has been this expansion. Mm -hmm. And as our species emerged from Africa, they mixed with Neanderthals. Um, they mixed with these Denisovans. They colonized new habitats, right? They were at that point basically us, you know, they're explorers, they're colonizing new places, they're getting it, they're developing complex cultures, they're finding new ways to live in new habitats. You know, that's something very distinctively human. Mm -hmm. Before that time, though, when Neanderthals were still around, when these Denisovans were still around, when Naledi was still around, we seem to be different. You know, uh, the, the world was a more complex place. We had multiple populations that existed and we don't know how they interacted. You mean there's like multiple tribes of homo sapiens dispersed around that, that weren't, there were, there were the homo sapiens in Africa right. and they were already diversifying at that point. The ancestors of today's African peoples look like they go back a couple hundred thousand years in terms of their diversity. So they were diversifying. Hmm. You've got Neanderthals in Europe and in Western Asia. You've got Denisovans in Eastern Asia, it looks like, Southeast Asia probably. You've got on the island of Flores in Indonesia, another population, tiny people who we call hobbits today, Homo floresiensis. Um, we discovered them in 2003. And so you've got that population. You've got Naledi. You've got a world that's full of different kinds of things. Hmm. And that world is really different from now. You know, today is a really unusual time. Yeah. Well, what what were we doing for the first 100,000? <laughs> it seemed like for the last 100,000 years, mm -hmm. we've been exploring. We've, yeah. been, we've been driving most large mm -hmm. things into extinction. Mm -hmm. But... But there was a hundred thousand years where where we weren't. Yeah, you know, it's like what was it that was different about people then, right? And and it's misleading to look back that way, right? Because you're looking at people who were great, who survived, you know, who who lived in balance with their habitat in some way, you know, and yet they lived in very different ways than we do now. You know, they were not an expanding hugely exponentially population they were living a simpler lifestyle in terms of technology 
um, they had many of the things that today we consider to be complex, right? They had pigments, they painted themselves, they decorated themselves sometimes, they decorated ostrich eggshells in parts, they wore um, pendants and ornaments in some places. The Neanderthals did most of this stuff. Neanderthals were wearing eagle talons as necklaces, and they're you know they're doing cool stuff. Um, so the the signs of this kind of complex behavior, this human like cultural behavior, are there, um, but it's very it's very much simpler than today, and it doesn't accumulate in the same way. You're looking at people that are not exponential growth. You know, you're looking at people who are living lives that are cultural lives, but doing so in small groups, small populations that are, you know, each of them having their own experience in some way. Have we evolved in some ways since that time? Are we taller, shorter? Uh, have there been changes over the last couple hundred thousand years? What's happened is that we've evolved really substantial diversity. Um, most of the differences that you see is visually obvious in the world today. The fact that some populations are real tall and others are short. Mm. The fact that some people have really light skin pigment and other people very dark, right? Mm. Some people have light eyes and other people dark eyes. Almost all of those variations are new. They haven't been around for more than 30 or 40,000 years. Mm. And, and some of them owe to moving into these new habitats. So the fact that some populations today have an incredible ability to perform at high altitude, right? So you've got Sherpa in Tibet and in Nepal and, and Tibetan people in Tibet. They're incredible at living at high altitude and performing at high altitude. Yeah, we did an episode that there's a, a person that studies the particular gene that allows them to. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, exactly. So, so all of that's new. Yeah. Right, that stuff didn't exist a hundred thousand years ago, hmm. and um, and we have adaptations to disease that have emerged in that time. You know, so some people have resistances to malaria, for instance. Um, all of those are pretty new. You know, it's like what our evolution has been in the last hundred thousand years is evolution that makes people better at living in the strange new places where they live. Hmm. Um, and sometimes that's self-created, right? Why do we have adaptations to malaria today? Because a hundred thousand years ago, we didn't live in villages with pots that held water that made mosquito habitat that, you know, in the forest that we cleared, you know, so all of that is actually new. We've, we've made this new habitat and hmm. some of it is we've started living in new habitat. Hmm. So are are we uh, are we done? Are we are we are we going to keep on evolving? <laughs> we, what, what's what's the what's the future of human evolution look like? You know, people you always want to know that, and and I have to tell you that evolution is slow, right? I've, we I can look yeah. at thirty thousand years and say, wow, we have these changes in thirty thousand years. Yeah, that's, and I tell that's you that's fast. that's fast from an right. evolution point of view, right? right. Thirty thousand years is a thousand generations, mm -hmm. you know. So so if you imagine a thousand people, you know, go to some high school sporting event, you might see a thousand people there. And if you all held hands in a row and said, well, this person next to me is my mother and next to her is a grand grandmother and so on, that's a thousand, you know, mm -hmm. it's not so many that's right. fast change in that sense. But a thousand generations from now seems like a long time from now. is a long time to predict and imagine. Right? right. Right. I was talking to my students today in class and, and I said, you know, one, 
One thing you guys haven't thought about is that all of you, you're, you know, they're now 20, 25 years old, you know, undergraduate, graduate students. I said, all of you were born at a time when there were less than 5 billion people in the world. And I was born at a time when there were less than 4 billion. And so that incredible change in just a couple generations is faster than evolution can keep up with. Yeah. And we may adapt to that, right? By, by, you know, today, the people that are having more kids are the ones that are contributing to the next generation. And they're not random in some ways. Um, you, people have studied this, right? We know that in, in American populations in the last 50 years, uh, women who've had on average more kids have tended to be a little shorter, you know? And so mm. it's like, well, okay. So are we evolving to be shorter? Mm. No, men who've had more kids are a little bit taller. You know? right. <laughs> and so there's a, there's a sense to which it's not predictable and we don't really understand why in 50 years, this difference is there. Mm. Um, but evolution is small changes adding up over long periods of time. And so we can't easily predict what we're seeing now, how long it's going to continue. All right. Well, first, I, I have another large question that mm -hmm. I want to ask you, but I don't want to run out of time too fast. So I, I better quick have you plug a, I have my guests plug a charity of their choice uh -huh. each week, if you have one in mind. Well, I'll tell you what, I, I would love people to check out. Uh, it's yeah. an organization called Trowel Blazers. Mm -hmm. Trowel Blazers. And what they do is they promote women in archaeology, the history of women in archaeology and career paths for girls and women in archaeology. They're a great organization. They organize events mainly in the UK, but I love it because they're, they're a connection between the history of women in archaeology. Uh, there have been some amazing women archaeologists in the history of the field, but also the way that today careers are, because our discipline is right now a, a discipline in which it's one of the sciences in which women are really the, the trailblazers. And, mm -hmm. so, and so I think this is a really important one. Well, plus they're small and can fit into the, the little spaces. Yeah, for us and our team, this is super important. Obviously, um, you know, and we don't neglect that. You know, it is it is the fact that this is a science that anyone can do. Yeah. that is really you know important to us, important to our work. What's your? You mentioned you know everyone has their kind of specific niche in the field. What's mm -hmm. what's your specialty? What do you like doing the most? Are you you love being out in the field? Do you? It's I've you know I feel like I'm on this journey. You know when I first started, I was not somebody who imagined I would spend all my time in the field. And uh, and over time, you know my kids have grown up to where I can be in the field almost all the time. I'm in Africa three or four months out of the year. Um, I've lived in Africa now for, for quite a long time. And that is really central to what I do. You know, I feel like those connections that we make with, uh, with our team, you know, the scientists that are working with us with government, with local people where we work, you know, those are the connections that keep our science going. And, uh, and all of us, you know, in this science rely on the support of people where we work, where around the world, you know, we are telling the stories of how humans are connected to each other. And it's not always obvious how one of these ancient groups is connected to us. Right. But the fact is that 
they're part of our shared heritage and we come from that history. And so understanding that history and connecting people to it, creating jobs in local places, creating tourism, you know, making those connections for people is, is ultimately why as a species we're going to survive. Well, since we're talking about connecting with people and, mm-hmm. and uh, there's this big push to kind of open things up for, mm-hmm. for uh, more people to get involved, if, uh, if people want to do some digging and, and learn about some of this stuff on their own, uh, and it, it, what's available to them? Is there, is there like lots of pictures of some of these fossils online that people are able to find? Absolutely. And have a look at? With, with our fossils, you, one of the really exciting things about our stuff is that we've made fossil models available that's, that are based on 3D scanning. Um, so we have models of our fossils that anybody can download and print on a 3D printer. Oh, right? that's so you, cool. You see them sitting over there on my cabinet, right? We've got all these 3D prints. Ah. These are our fossils. And, and schools are doing this everywhere. People have got their own. You know, I've, I've had people who send away to shape ways to get a, you know, like a silver version or something. You know, it's, it's pretty cool. That is very cool. Um, so oh, I didn't even notice this walking in here. I'll have to take a picture and post it. That's a big media. thing, right? People can actually do people if they're interested can actually do science on our fossils, right? The, the same things we've made available are what we use in our scientific work. Um, so that's something they can do. There are lots of digs that are looking for volunteers where people can get involved. And that's here in the United States, but also internationally. And if people really are interested in becoming engaged with this and willing to put up and spend some time at it, there are great opportunities out there. You know, it's it's a really it's a good field for people to come in as um, as avocational, you know, people who just want to have that experience because those experiences are real experiences. You know, we we do use people. Hmm. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, we don't so much in our particular site, right? We work in a very dangerous situation. Right. Um, but, but there are lots of digs where people can get involved. Well, that is terrific. Well, thanks for finding the time to sit down with me. And, and I look forward to our show tonight. Awesome. Thanks, John. And thank you, listeners, for being such wonderful, curious people. We'll talk with you next week. Next week on the podcast in celebration with the Psychonautics film release, we're going to be talking about psychedelics. Got another psychedelic episode for you. I know it's been a while. Many of you, it's your favorite episodes when we get down with the psychedelic talk. We're going to be talking about Iboga and Ibogaine next week with Elizabeth Bast. Really cool, incredible story interesting substance that i've never experienced with myself but i find absolutely fascinating it's one of the bucket list things for me for sure so make sure and check out next week's episode and make sure and download psychonautics psychonauticsfilm.com to get it on itunes and amazon today the actual release date is march 5th but you can pre-order today depending on when you're listening to this, or maybe the time you're listening to this after March 5th so you can watch it today. Those of you that listen all the way to the end, you are, of course, my favorites. Don't forget to check out the Stand Up Science Tour on ShaneMossMAUSS.com. Thank you. Music brought to you this week by The Long Hunt. 